Recovery Elevator, episode 105. I always said it wasn't, the drugs and alcohol weren't my problem. The reality was my problem. The drugs and alcohol were the solution. It's like the, the drinking, the gambling, the girls, the drugs. It was just a symptom of a much, much larger issue. And it had to deal with that, that internal struggle of like, what am I doing with my life? And my lack of communication, like I didn't connect with anybody. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years, five months, and four days. On today's podcast, we've got James. He's 29 years old, and his dad passed away last August, and he's been sober for 79 days with help from his HP. That would be higher power. I want to talk to you guys for a second about Annie Grace's This Naked Mind video coaching course. You will learn why setting limits never works and what to do instead. It is a rational and intelligent approach firmly based in the most up-to-date psychology and neuroscience. It provides a proven, methodical blueprint for change, which guides you step-by-step through getting started and making change stick. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Annie and use the promo code ELEVATOR50 for $50 off. That's ELEVATOR50 for $50 off. Okay, let's get started. The topic for today is, does getting sober require just not drinking? Well, the short answer to that is yes, but getting sober and recovery are two totally different things. Getting sober is just not drinking like I just mentioned. Recovery, well, that entails a whole heck of a lot of different things. But today I want to talk to you guys more about being a dry drunk and why quitting alcohol is really only just the first step in recovery. When an alcoholic manages to break free of their addiction, there can be a lot of initial optimism about the future. For years, life may have been a bit unbearable. For me, it was very unbearable for themselves and for the loved ones around them due to alcohol abuse. Now that the drinking has stopped, it is reasonable to expect that things will improve. Unfortunately, though, just removing alcohol is not enough in most cases to qualify as a recovery. Again, you're just a dry drunk. Instead, it is just the first step in an ongoing process with about 3,455 steps. I just made that number up, but it seems about right. If the individual does not put a lot of effort into the recovery, it can mean they fail to progress. They get stuck and life away from alcohol will not be as fulfilling and happy as it should be. This individual is classified as a dry drunk. Now, I was a dry drunk from January 1st, 2010 until about August of 2012. All I did during that period was not drink. Recovery? No way. I'm already doing it. I'm not drinking. Well, after my pink cloud went away, which seemed pretty quick, each day was better than the next. No, think about that for a second. Each day was better than the next. That's a slow downhill decline. That means today is better than tomorrow. I'm serious on this one. Think about that. When I was a dry drunk, each day was better than the next. It was just a slow downhill decline until I drank again. So where does the term dry drunk come from? It is believed to come from the Romanticism period in early 8th century England. I'm just kidding on that one. There's no history that can back that up. The term dry drunk is believed to originate from 12-step recovery groups. It is used to describe those who no longer drink alcohol but in many ways behave like they are still in the midst of addiction. We all know somebody like that. Again, that was me for two and a half years. The dry drunk may be full of resentment and anger. Instead of finding joy in their life away from alcohol, they can act as if they were serving a prison sentence. Now, I can tell you with firsthand experience, for about a year in my dry drunk episode, I felt as if I was living a prison sentence, like it was a punishment to me. 
Every time I looked at alcohol, I wanted to drink it. I felt like I was giving myself a punishment. And I can tell you right now in recovery, that's not how I feel. So the only change a person or a dry drunk has made is stop drinking, but other respects in their life remain the same. Friends and family can complain that the dry drunk is almost as hard to be around as when they were drinking. In AA, they describe it as a person who hasn't touched alcohol in years, but have not yet managed to get sober. If this is your first Recovery Elevator podcast that you're listening to, I'm sure your mind is spinning. That is fine. That's okay, though, because you got about 104 episodes before this to clear it up. So go ahead and clear up around, I don't know, 104 hours of your time and get caught up. Oh yeah, and before I go any further, I want to mention I got information for this podcast episode on alcoholrehab.com, just an article that I read there. So what is the cause of the dry drunk? Individuals who turn to alcohol for comfort will do so because they find life difficult to manage through daily life without it. This is because they have poor coping skills. Yep, that was me for about a decade. They are unable to use alcohol as a way to ignore their difficulties. This means that instead of learning from the challenges of life that they face in life, they just ignore them, ignore them with alcohol. If such people manage to later escape addiction, they will be in the same position they were before the alcohol abuse began. In other words, they will just be returning to the same conditions that drove them to alcoholism in the first place. Now, this is a value bomb right here. Listen up. Recovery is not about a return to how life was before addiction. I'm going to say this one more time. This could be the definition of recovery in a nutshell. Recovery is not about returning to how life was before addiction. If life was unsatisfying before the addiction, at the time, it is unlikely to be satisfying now. Instead, recovery is about starting a new way of life that is better than anything before. Nobody gets a free pass in life, and living means dealing with challenges. Your car is going to break down. Hurricane Katrina, there's probably going to be more of those. Spouses, you can't control them. Life is going to happen. I've said this many times on the podcast previously. Life doesn't happen to us. Get that in your dome right now. Life just happens. We've got to roll with the punches and learn to let it go. We need to develop coping skills without alcohol. Because alcohol, that's not a coping skill. That is a poison called ethanol with a couple additives added to it to make it palatable. It is not possible to remove all the stresses in life. Believe me, I have tried. But it is possible to develop new tools to deal with these challenges. Again, you can learn about these tools in episode 000 through 104. In recovery, the individual learns new coping strategies, and this allows them to live a good life without the need to turn to alcohol. Now, personal development cannot occur unless the person is willing to participate and wants to change. The dry drunk describes the individual who has not managed to put the required effort into recovery. They are still struggling to deal with life using their own old, flawed coping strategies. Now listen to this line right here. There's a hard way to get sober, and there's a harder way to get sober. The hard way, it doesn't work. The hard way is the dry drunk way. The harder way is the recovery way. Now how do you spot a dry drunk? What are the symptoms of a dry drunk? Well, they usually wear blue plaid shirts. I loved my blue plaid shirt from 2010 to 2012, but again, I can't back that up with evidence. That's from my own personal experiences. So the symptoms of a dry drunk. The individual has a very low tolerance for stress. They easily get upset if things are not going their way. The dry drunk continues to engage in unhealthy behavior. In order to deal with lack of satisfaction in recovery, this individual may turn to new vices. I embarked upon a small episode of being a dry drunk in this period of recovery. That was myself and chewing tobacco in mid-2016. Such an individual can suffer from loneliness and lack of interest in activities to fill their time. 
the fact that they make minimal effort to build a life in recovery means that things remain unsatisfactory. Another symptom that someone is a dry drunk is denial. It can be a big problem for the dry drunk as it can be for the practicing alcoholic. The individual may refuse to see their life in recovery needs to change. Here's a big one. Dry drunks may romance the drink. They forget how bad things were. That would be the ism, the incredible short memory, and can now only remember the good drinking days. That is very dangerous. The ism, the incredible short memory, makes the thought of that last drink not quite as bad. It makes my failed suicide attempt in 2014 in August almost humorous, like it wasn't really that big of a deal. But in reality, it was terrible. I don't ever want to go back to that. Another symptom of a dry drunk is they're likely to suffer from a lot of self-pity. Recovery is not as satisfying as they expected, and they feel that they were cheated. A dry drunk tends to feel full of pride and feels overconfident in their abilities. Now, the term dry drunk is pejoratively used in AA circles to describe people who aren't working the program. It tends to be said in a judgmental way, and for this reason may be considered an unhelpful description. It can also be used in an unfair way that amounts to victim blaming. Just because an individual is struggling in recovery doesn't necessarily mean that they are doing anything wrong. A significant number of alcoholics have a dual diagnosis, myself included, which means they have another mental health problem to contend with as well as their addiction. Describing such people as dry drunks is just ignoring their real problems and therefore damaging. So no one really wants to be a dry drunk, including myself. So how do we avoid this? The first step to avoiding the dry drunk syndrome, why syndrome is placed there, I'm not sure, is recognizing the symptoms which I just read. The individual needs to be committed fully to recovery and to regularly monitor their own progress. They need to understand that recovery is a lifelong commitment that requires continued change and effort. I heard this while volunteering at Hope Rehab in Thailand, and that is the road in recovery narrows. We always need to be evolving and changing our recovery. If we are one of the lucky ones who gets a few years of recovery under our belt, the pace slows down a little bit, but it should never stop completely. If life in recovery does not feel satisfying and fulfilling for much of the time, it is a sign that someone is not quite right. It is vital that the individual looks closely at what is going wrong and remedies the situation or seeks to help. In my opinion, affirmations are key to this. That would be going to a meeting regularly, having regular meetings with other alcoholics at coffee shops, paying $12 a month to be part of the private confidential community Cafe RE. Every time you see that bill on your credit card, you're like, wait, I need to be engaged. I need to join the masses again. Because whatever comes out of those doors of life, we've got a better chance of survival if we stick together. Now, those individuals who do develop into a dry drunk can always escape this unsatisfactory way of living. The hardest part of avoiding that is admitting that you're a dry drunk. Hardest part about getting sober is admitting that you've got a problem. Is something contemporaneous here? I think so. So once this is done, the person will be able to examine where they have gone wrong in their recovery. They may then decide that a support group or therapist is required to get them back on track. Now, you heard me mention willpower when I talked about Annie Grace's video coaching course. Willpower is finite and exhaustible. It's only going to last so long. That is why recovery is vital with this. Again, like I mentioned, recovery is not about a return to how life was before addiction. Recovery is about creating a new life without the addiction. Exactly how to do that? Again, block off about 100 hours and listen to episode 000 to 104. Okay. Now let's hear from interviewee James, but before we do that, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. 
With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. James, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for asking. James, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? 74 days. 74 days. Nice job, man. How's it yeah. feel? feels way better than I expected. The, the gifts and the, and the goodness has come a lot sooner than I, uh, I anticipated, so it, it gives me hope going forward, especially that uh, things will get much better from here. Yeah, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, it, it does. 79 days was not the peak for me. I had a pink cloud. That pink cloud disappeared, but even when I got back to baseline, it was still just so much better than the being sick and tired of being sick and tired of the drinking days that I was living in. But before we get too much further in this interview, James, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, do you have a puppy named Milo maybe, and what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> sure, sure. So um, I was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, I mean a little town outside it called Dunmore. I currently live in uh, Weehawken, New Jersey. I commute into Manhattan for work every day. I am 29 years old. I do uh, software sales for, uh, for a startup in the city. I currently live with my girlfriend of two years, and like you said, our, uh, our puppy named Milo, he's the best. So, uh, yeah, that's a little uh, background. And for, in terms of fun, I love hitting the gym every morning. It's a good way to get my, my day going, get me in the right mindset. And in the summer, uh, I'm a big golfer. So I like to golf as much as I possibly can in the summer or even take trips in the winter to go somewhere warm where I can, I can play. Nice. And listeners, I got an email from James, um, probably 1500 words. And I love it when I get these longer <laughs> emails. And like you said, at the end, it was, it's fairly therapeutic to write because yeah, rarely do we put a full timeline of our drinking on paper. And, and oftentimes things yeah. you know, are illuminated by that. But there was a line in there that I absolutely loved. It was, I was attending Bible study with other athletes, going to church regularly, reading St. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine in the <laughs> library on Friday nights, and made the decision to not get drunk anymore. Are we talking like a four-year public university, you were a freshman at, at like a real college here, and you made that decision just to not drink your freshman year? Yeah, man. So, like, this whole thing kind of ties into, like, the reasoning behind my drinking, I think. So, I drank, I started drinking, I was like, like I said, like, stealing beers or wine coolers or whatever, when I was 13, and then high school and the binge drinking started and like like the writing was on the wall and you kind of know uh, looking back on it especially like after 74 days of being sober and looking back on it you can definitely tell there was some times in high school where i'm like eh, something's probably not right you need to figure <laughs> those things you're, you're, you're young yeah uh, everyone else is doing it so it's just like oh, everything's fine but i got to college and i didn't like like there was things that happened in high school where like it was a burden on my family and it was it like, it just wasn't, it wasn't clicking. It wasn't registering for me of why I was even drinking. And I got to college and one of my teammates was um, like a born again Christian. He kind of found himself back to like a better place in his life. And I kind of grew, grew close to him. And that's where like the Bible study came into play and, and reading a lot. And I've always had this like existential crisis of like, why are we here? Sure. And it kind of like, 
really it really was a driver for my drinking because I actually wrote into you after the episode about cognitive dissonance because my beliefs and my behaviors the last 10 years couldn't have been farther apart. And it was like an internal struggle with myself the entire time. Yeah. So that freshman year, I didn't, I didn't get drunk at all. Like I said, I mean, I was pretty into my faith. I was, I was going to church and I was searching for that, like what I wanted to do with my life. And all throughout college, I even did a, an internship with the Peace Corps. I thought about going into the Peace Corps after college. I uh, was like taking sociology classes and philosophy classes. That's what interested me. And I ended up on Wall Street. So it just from that moment on, it kind of took a turn for the worse. And it, from there until I was like 20, until I met my girlfriend, it was just a, it was an internal battle because... Talk to me about Wall Street life for a second. It says, I fell hard. I was 22 at the time, and it didn't take long before yeah. cocaine became my drug of choice. It went hand in hand with the liquor. Talk to me about that phase of your life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so like I said, everything, pretty much everything that I thought and, like, and did in freshman year college went out the window. Uh, and it was, I just saw people making a lot of money, and I was actually going to backpack across Europe with my buddy, and we caddied, and the second day I caddied, this gentleman hired me a week later and I took the job. I didn't go nice. backpacking and it was, yeah, it was great. I mean, I thought it was good. I was making good money. I was 22 and I was working like on the legal side of things. And the goal was to go into corporate finance, which I ended up doing after the two years. But I was 22. I got a little money in my pocket and things just really took off for me. And before I knew it, it wasn't just Coke. It was pretty much anything I could get my hands on and that internal battle of like my beliefs and my behaviors is still there like the whole time is in new york city i'm not sure what it's like in montana but in new york it's every day you're with thousands and thousands of people commuting and you just see these people and they don't look happy and no one's in a good mood and everyone's doing something they don't like doing <laughs> and i'm like there's gotta be there's gotta be more to life than this yeah, you, you're and not selling would, me on this, James. I think I'm going to stick to the freezing cold weather in Montana right now. <laughs> yeah, you're not missing much out here, I'm telling you. Yeah. So, well, right, but it's like, I can't, it was like this internal battle, like, I've, there's got to be more to life than this. Of me going to a job I don't like, me partying this, all this time, me having no emotional connections whatsoever. Oh, I was very selfish. Like, my friends told me I was selfish throughout this phase. Like, it was a noticeable thing, and I just kept going with it. It was a lot of complaining and self-loathing and woe is me and the world's against me. And that's what it was. It was just, I would just dig the holes deeper and deeper. And I always said it wasn't, the drugs and alcohol weren't my problem. The reality was my problem. The drugs and alcohol were the solution. It's like the, the drinking, the gambling, the girls, the drugs. It was just a symptom of a much, much larger issue. And it had to deal with that, that internal struggle of like, what am I doing with my life? And my lack of communication, like I didn't connect with anybody. If I didn't communicate, I wasn't connecting. And if I wasn't connecting, I felt isolated. And when I felt isolated, I would use and drink. And that's what I did. For All right. Hang, hang on one seven, second here, James. I got I can tell you from the East Coast because I got you clock talking at 308 words per minute. Nice job. <laughs> it's got to be a record. But you, uh, you dropped yeah. a value bomb and I want to circle the wagon back to it. You mentioned that right. the drinking and the drugs was kind of not the problem, which to me, you hear yeah. it and you're like, wait a second, this is a podcast about drinking. That's got to be the problem. But it was a symptom of the problem. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah. I mean, the big thing for me was, like I said, was like that internal battle. And when it goes back to like why we're here, it's 
I always say this to people. People look at me like I have like ten heads when I talk about this. But it's <laughs> when you're like, think about when you're when you're ninety years old and you're on your deathbed, you're not looking back on the software you sold or the media you sold or any of that stuff. It's when you look back in your life, you hope you had somewhat of a positive impact, and you're looking back on the bond you formed and the, and the relationships you had. And I wasn't doing any of that, and it was something I was aware of, but I still didn't care. And that's how powerful the addiction is, I think, as well, because I knew all this. Like, this was all, like, I was pretty self-aware of, like, I was going through these motions of not wanting to do this, but I was doing it anyway. And that's where, the, like, I just kept digging the, the deeper holes. But it wasn't about the drinking and the drugs. I always say, like, it wasn't uh, the hardest. The hardest thing was to admit that I had a problem because I went that freshman year of college without drinking. It's like, oh, I don't have a problem. I don't drink every day. And I don't, I don't have to drink every day. And I don't get, I use drugs every day. And it was never, I thought it was never, and I try to control it when I met my girlfriend, it didn't work. And then it's like, then you just, it just, the pain got bad enough towards the end where I just couldn't do it anymore. That's pretty much what it came down to. And so, yeah, describe to me about your bottom, James. When you said the pain got bad enough at the end, and it sounds like it's something more of like, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I read in your email that it was almost like Russian roulette every time you're going out. And I can assimilate right. with that when I was in Spain. You know, I'm blacking out seven nights a week, just any false <laughs> right. step and, you know, no good. But at the end for me, it really got to the point where I was just so sick and tired of getting my ass kicked night after night after night. Is that something similar to what your bottom was like? Yeah. I mean, I always, I like to say it's like, I, I think I like, I skidded against like cross rock bottom for a while. <laughs> yeah. Because, I like that. Like, um, like emotionally, spiritually, mentally, I was broken for a while. And it was just a vicious cycle until I met my girlfriend two years ago, where she filled a huge void in my life that like unearthed the ability to care about someone else other than myself. And the drinking and the drugging wasn't as, as often, like she filled that void and I didn't have, I didn't feel the need to go out as much, but it was, it was still happening. It would be like, I wouldn't drink for three or four weeks and then I'd go out and it would just wreak havoc on my life. I'd be, I'd disappear. I wouldn't answer my phone. I'd be gone for a day. And there was consequences. I had someone else in my life. And I did that for two years. Just literally every month I would screw up and then it would just be a, a nightmare. And that's what really, and it was like living two lives and the lies and all that stuff. It just, I couldn't take it anymore. And it, the last time I went out, I got back at like 8 a.m. and my girlfriend was gone, my dog was gone, and I just sat and cried. And I was like, I cannot do this anymore. This is, I don't have anything left in me. I, and, I, and I decided to, to check myself into an outpatient program two days later. Nice. And what was that like when you got into outpatient program? It was weird. I've been going to therapy. So if you backtrack a little bit before I met my girl, I got arrested and that's kind of what set the wheels in motion of like things needed to change. Sure. Uh, my family found out and like, they kind of led somewhat of an intervention and they're like, I come from like a close Italian family, so we are all really close. And I take what they say uh, seriously. And my mom was like, either go to rehab, go see a therapist, or come home. And obviously the lesser of the three evils there was go see a therapist. <laughs> yeah. When your Italian mom gives <laughs> so, you three options, you got to pick one. You have to. Right. I gotta, you got to pick one of them. And even I said to myself, I'm like, you know what? I could probably, something's not right here. I could probably use a therapist. Sure. And uh, I did that. And I she tried to get me into group things, but with me being so walled off and shut off, I was totally against it. So I would go to like one group meeting and then I'd back out. 
and I wouldn't commit to it. And with the outpatient program, that's all it is. It's, it's group therapy, and you have to and you have to commit to it. You, you get what you put into it. If you just go and sit there, it's you're not gonna. It's nothing's gonna happen. So, first couple times were a little rough. Um, you're talking to complete strangers about your life, and so very quickly you uncover that. I mean, everyone's coming from the same place. Everyone's hurting. Uh, you re, you relate, and it's easy to open up, and it's been it's been unbelievable. It's it's literally changed my life, and it's allowed me to to reconnect and get that part back to me of connecting with people on an emotional level. So it's it's been great. Yeah, well, and let me pause you for a second there. You said you get a group of people together and you relate. And I'm going to throw a conditional word in there. You relate if you're ready to quit drinking. Because when I got around my first group of people, a.k.a. my first AA meeting ever, I did not relate. And I walked out of that room and drank like two nights later. And I came to the conclusion that I was not an alcoholic. So that tells me that you, you related with those other people when you heard their stories, that you're ready to get this ball rolling. You did. And, you know, right now, I mean, so it was like November 12th was your sobriety date. How many days do you have again? 74 days. 74. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And so what was that like? Walk me forward after you related with the people. Yeah. So I pretty much, so it, those two years, as, as much as they sucked, it was actually like a blessing in disguise for me because I saw what not drinking and not putting in the work did. And it got me nowhere. So when I decided finally that like this needs to change, because I went into my therapist two years ago and I said I think I need to stop drinking. <laughs> and we basically did that for we basically did that every week for two years, but there was always a wedding and it was summer and it was sunny outside and I was wearing a blue sock and I was it was all these excuses <laughs> a of damn like blue sock. why I need yeah like why I need to still drink like you think of anything under the sun to I can't stop drinking now I have to do this or it's this and it was that for two years. And once I committed to not drinking, I immersed myself in everything. I, I do group therapy. I do individual therapy. I do the outpatient. I go to AA. I do dialectical behavioral therapy. I'm reading. I'm writing. I'm doing everything I wasn't doing before. And that's really where the difference comes into play. It's, it's this is work. Like, it's, it, there's no way around it. You've got to put the work in. And that's why I've seen such benefits in the 74 days because I've, I've, I immersed myself in it as much as possible. And for some people, that might not work, but for me, it did. And James, what you just said in the last 40 seconds right there could pretty much be the handbook to sobriety. You know, It might not work for a lot of people. In fact, I haven't met somebody where that attitude has not worked for them, where they got to a point where they did everything possible to stay sober. They immersed themselves in everything. I've heard of a lot of therapies, James. I've never heard of the dialectical behavioral therapy. I've never heard of that. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you what that is yeah. in a second here. But sure. like you just said, you, you started doing everything that you weren't doing before, which probably tells me you were right. doing some things that you probably didn't want to do before. Am I right on that? Oh, for sure. I mean, oh, getting yeah. out of your comfort zone is is, is, the, big, is the biggest thing. It's I, for, for the last 10 years, I just basically went, it was in a hamster wheel, and I was like, that's not working. So let's do everything differently. And that's been the game changer. The, the things that worked for me is, yeah, I stopped drinking, but I started to communicate. I started to tell my girlfriend things that I didn't tell her before. I stopped living a lie. Like, that was one of the things that was weighing me down. And it's been huge for me is I'm tired of lying. I'm tired of hiding. I've been hiding my whole life. So when I told my boss, I told everybody at work, like, there's no, hey, it's sober January, or it's, oh, I don't feel like drinking. It's like, when people ask me, it's like, no, I'm, I'm sober. I'm not, I'm done drinking. Nice and, job, man. 
and I think it's been easy for me because of the support I've gotten about that. But for me, that's, that's what works. It's letting everybody know of where I'm at, because if I'm just saying it's sober January, or if I'm just saying it's, Oh, I'm doing a cleanse. It's still like <laughs> hiding. It's still lying for me. And, and I was tired of doing all that. And so I'm like, I'm like an open book now. It's almost like the opposite end of the spectrum, but it's, I feel like a million pounds lighter. James, I've realized you can't skip any steps in recovery, but it looks like you passed go and collected about $2 million and you just flew around the board <laughs> like 20 times in, in two months, three months right there. And, and what were some of the reactions? Because I know a lot of the people, they're like, wait a second, they're going to hear you say you told your boss it's no longer sober January. It's just I'm sober for good. And what were the reactions? Right. And you said you've been surrounded with support. Did that surprise you? It did. It did. Because the stigma. It, it's funny because the whole time, like, I knew I had a problem. Like, I think I knew I had a problem when, like, my, my grandfather died when I was 23 and, like, something happened. I went out that night. And so back to 23. I woke up the next day and I was like, something's not right here. Yeah. But you ignore all that because you want to keep drinking. So for years, like people saw like something's probably not right with him. And like under this, like my family knew, everybody knew, but I couldn't admit it. So when I came out and like finally told everybody, like I, like I have it. And everyone's like, yeah, man, maybe you should have went to rehab like three years ago. Like jokingly, but like it wasn't, everyone wasn't shocked. It was like, I'm happy for you. Like, this is great. And even my boss, like all the support and everybody I work with, everyone respects you for it. Totally. And it's, and it's like one of the guys that, that leads our group, he always says there's like two ways to do things, the hard way and the harder way. And the hard way is like continuing to drink and use and going down the path you're going. And the harder way is getting sober and dealing with your shit and getting real with yourself and getting honest with yourself and other people. And I think people really do respect that because people relate, especially in New York City, man. There's a lot of people who who go through it. There's a lot going on in life and, and jobs and work and people are stressed out. And I think they would like to quit too. And it, it's hard for people. And I think it's just a respect factor and they, it's the support. Like I said, it's been amazing. So it makes it easy for me to say, Hey, I'm sober. But like I said, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's works. It's worked really well for me. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to catch up with all this, but you, you've, you've basically hit on all the value bombs that I've learned in doing this podcast. And what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I know that that's a rapid fire round question, but what is your plan right. to get day 75, day 76, 77, 78? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very cliche, but it's, it is one, it's one day at a time. My dad used to always say, he said, inch by inch, life is cinch, yard by yard, life is hard. And yeah. that couldn't be more true, especially in sobriety. It's not even the day by day. It's just, I'm not drinking right now. And as long as I don't drink right now, I give, I'm giving myself a chance. Like, I feel like I have my life back and that, and I'm giving my chance, myself a chance to be the person I should be. And if I drink and I continue to use, I can't reach that potential. That's really been the driver for me. And I'm like thinking clearly now that I'm sober and immersing myself in all this stuff really brings it to the forefront every day. That's why to have something every day is huge because whether you're reading or listening to a podcast, it keeps it fresh, and that's that's the big thing for me is keeping it fresh. So your statement of if I continue to drink, I won't be able to reach my full potential was basically the impetus of me beginning my journey into sobriety. It was at my grandfather's funeral. I saw him standing next to a tank in World War II, basically just being a badass, and I looked at you know, right. my self-reflection. I'm like, wow, I'm a colossal piece of shit right now. I need right. to make some yeah, changes. Yeah. And then you know, five, six, seven years later, is when the rubber started to, to, to make some traction yeah. right there. 
And I want to chat about your father, and I'm so sorry your, your dad passed away in August. You've been feeling a lot of emotions as of late, well, 74 days as of now, without the aid of alcohol. How has that been? To be honest, it hasn't. I had a 20. I had therapy today, and we talked about that, and it still hasn't hit me yet. The things I've been working on have been on the surface. It's like the stuff that was on my mind and like weighing me down that I came clean with and coming clean with sobriety is like those are the things I've been focused on. I haven't even scratched the surface of like my grandfather and my dad yet. Sure. And that's obviously the goal. And uh, when I get there, who knows? I mean, I haven't felt much for so long that it could just hit me like a freight train. But I want that. Like, I want that feeling. I was sick of going through life numb and uh, selfish and not connected. And it was just, it was an awful way to live. And if it hits me like a freight train and I'm filled with emotion, then great. Like, that's, that's the goal here. But to be honest, it hasn't, it hasn't gotten there yet. But that's, that's the ultimate goal. And so which one do you have the most affinity with? I, I know it's a recovery portfolio. I'm not asking you to pick one, but at this moment, you know, hypothetically, you should, yeah, pick one. You individual therapy. You got you got outpatient in AA meetings. Right. You got the, the, the podcast, the meetings. Like what is resonating with you the most at this moment right now with 74 days of sobriety? The outpatient. The outpatient has been super, super helpful. And I don't know if it's the group of guys in there or what, but it's just a, it's like a safe zone. It's a place to to bring everything and for me it was factored in a lot of coming clean with my family and my girlfriend about stuff that I was burying and keeping to myself and because of group I was able to do that through the support of them and making them see making allowing them to make me see it in the right way in a positive way it's by far the, the best thing that I have right now but I couldn't do it with everything combined but if I had to pick one it'd be the, the outpatient. And listeners, I interviewed a girl named Christine. She's younger, late 20s, mid 20s, I think. And and she also owes her sobriety to outpatient therapy. If you want to listen to that podcast, you get another feel for what outpatient therapy is like and outpatient ther- uh, treatment. But uh, yeah, I hear it's fantastic. And I don't know anything about outpatient. I did, however, just volunteer for 10 days in an inpatient rehab in Thailand. And that was an amazing experience. And James, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? There's been a lot. I guess I would have to say the night I got arrested was probably, I spent like 24 hours in central booking with about 2,000 other people in and out like a revolving door. I was in a cell with uh, about 30 other guys and then coming home and seeing the look on my family's face was probably the worst memory I've had of drinking. Sure. We've all heard of that yeah. aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that maybe you couldn't control your drinking? I think it would go back to when my, my grandfather uh, passed away when I was 23 and I just went out and I was coke, it was pills, it was whatever I could get my hands on to take me, take me out of that and I woke up the next day and I was like something, something's not right here. But I continue to do it for the next six years, but that's probably when I realized that something's not right. Gotcha. Now, I know I asked this earlier, and you responded with one day at a time, which you're you're like inch by inch a cinch, yard by yard, life's hard, and I love that, and I'm a full subscriber to that methodology. But talk to me about what's your plan in sobriety moving forward in terms of all of your recovery portfolio. Yeah. The outpatient ends in a couple weeks, but I'm going to – I still continue with individual therapy, still continue with the DBT therapy. I'm going to uh, go to a group session also through my individual therapist, but I, I would love to, to volunteer 
or give back in some way. I think I, especially in New York, I think that I can make an impact or at least try to, to, to help out. And I think service would be a huge, a huge way to fill the outpatient days um, and also continue to go to AA. I only go about once a week uh, to AA. Like anything else, you take what you need from it and leave the rest. But yeah, I think that's, I mean, going forward, it's just to immerse myself in something every day, whether it's reading, therapy, AA, service, um, try to keep something going every day. I love it. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received, James? I would have to say that it is. this isn't a one-size-fits-all magic potion. You can't take a pill and, and fix all this. So it is It is testing things out. It's trying what works for you. It's, if 90 days, 90 meetings in 90 days, then great. If it's outpatient and therapy and DBT therapy, then great. But whatever it is, get a program, stick to it, and, uh, and, and make it work. But yeah, there's no one size fits all, and that's been a, been a help for me. And what is DBT? What does that stand for, and what is that therapy like? Dialectical behavioral therapy. So it helps with like the mindfulness and staying in the moment. Oh, there we go. Knowing your, yeah, knowing your surroundings, and it's like a subconscious thing, kind of. But it's been helpful. Like I don't even know if this was the reason why or not, but. I was actually, I met a friend and I walked into a bar that I used to go to all the time in Hoboken. And obviously the bartender didn't know. And as soon as I get in there, they send over two shots of whiskey to me. And I'm sitting at the table and I'm like, really? But it's just like, it, it, if you just think and just think for one second, just a split second of how this night is going to play out and how it's going to end, then you won't drink those shots. And that's the, it goes back to just not being so impulsive, staying in the moment, being mindful of where you are, what you're doing, and it's just stuff like that, and that's kind of what the therapy surrounds, and it's it's helpful for sure. Yeah, and I call that thinking, you know, just playing the tape forward, just play the drink forward, right. and it actually works. It's yeah, If you tell yourself, oh, I'm just going to have this one, then you think about it for a quick second, because studies show the unconscious mind will answer a third of a second faster. But if you just pause for, like you said, just a real second right, right. and think about it, okay, you know what? I've never, you know, in the last 410 attempts to drink, I've never had <laughs> just one. So I love it. <laughs> right. And what parting right. piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early sobriety or thinking about getting sober? The best advice I can give is to work on, is to take a hard look at yourself and work on those underlying issues. Because more often than not, it's really not the alcohol or the drugs. It's it's the underlying issues that are going on in your life. And if you take a hard look and you sit down and get real with yourself, that's really where the change comes into play. If you can put those wheels in motion and, and actually make a difference there, that's when you see some like amazing changes happen. But I, it's tough like anything else. It's hard. It takes work. And everyone does it when they're ready. But uh, that's, the, that's the best advice I can give. I love it. And James, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. I think that you might be an alcoholic if, if, you're, if you wake up and you, you feel that anxiety and the stress and the depression and all that. I mean, that's, you might want to sit down and take a look and be like, I don't know, am I doing this for the right reasons? I mean, I think, that's, I think that is something you have to take a look at. That anxiety, that depression, that pit in my stomach of not recalling <laughs> yeah. the great memories from the night before, but yeah, just trying right. to remember anything from the night before yeah, and run away yeah. from that depression. Oh, you just gave it, it gave me a pit yeah. in my stomach and thanks I, for helping me stay I know, sober. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, man, James, thank you so much for helping me stay sober. You mentioned the service component. You've been a service for the last 33 minutes helping us stay sober. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. 
No, man, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. On Saturday, May 20th, 2017 in Bozeman, Montana is the AALRM. That is Alive Again Life Recovery Mission Run for Recovery. If you can't make it to Bozeman, Montana, that's not a problem. You can do a virtual run. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash run. Again, that's recoveryelevator.com forward slash run and use the promo code recoveryelevator for a $5 off coupon. That's recoveryelevator with no space. Last year, we did this run. We had 14 people doing virtual runs, about 12 of us in person doing the run. It was a great time. There's a 10K and a 5K, so lace up those sneakers and start running now. Turns out, running's quite good for you. Get those endorphins going. So recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 